Our stories are meant to be told. They can save us, teach us empathy and take us on terrific journeys that can make us laugh, cry, jump with fright and then comfort us with a happy ending. I'm your host Yolanti Fawahidmi, a journalist who advocates for innovation and storytelling and this is Black Prose, the podcast of black writers talk amongst themselves. If you're looking for words that will sing and move you, Sophia Sinclair's work will do just that. She's a Montego Bay-born poet who won the Whitting Award and published her acclaimed collection Cannibal in 2016. It's what motivated her to write a new Jamaican memoir called How to Say Babylon, which is out now. I think the best place for us to start is to talk a bit about your memoir. Could you summarise it for everyone without any spoilers? Just give a bit of overview, a little overview of what the book's about. Sure. I mean, the book is about my childhood and adolescence, my upbringing in Jamaica, growing up in a strict Rastafari household, and how my eventual rebellion <laughs> led me to forging my own path as a woman and a poet. And I think one thing that I really loved about your book is very specific in how it's told. So the sentences, the words that you use, the poetry, because you're first and foremost a poet. And I can tell yes. that you're a poet with the choice of words that you've used. Why were you very intentional about how the memoir was constructive? constructed? Sorry. I mean, I think all writers need to be intentional with how they construct any piece of writing. And for me, that's true of anything I write. You know, I was just asked to just write a simple list Let's give us like your five favorite books. And I was like, it's not so simple for me. Yeah. I want what I say, especially if you're going to publish it. If it's going to like remain <laughs> on the <laughs> internet permanent. permanently, <laughs> I want to make sure it's constructed well. And, you know, so for me, that's the simplest thing. For my books, it is even more deeply rooted in how I think of myself as a writer and what I want to convey on the page. I believe the sentences need to be lyrical, they need to be rigorous. I think a lot about my writing being reflective of where I come from, right? So I want the writing to reflect the lessons I learned from the natural landscape of Jamaica, from the rhythm of the seaside, um, from my mother's oral folkloric storytelling. You know, I want my language, my sentences, the way I construct a book to be a direct mirror to that. Yeah, even like the way it started is very, it just pulls the reader in. It's like, wow, there's so much going on here. Everyone's very excited. There's so yes. much colour. There's so much, it's very noisy. That's how it reads, mm. but in a good way. Mm -hmm. In terms of your background and your upbringing, what would you say has been your biggest lesson? That you've learned? Oh, wow. The biggest lesson I've learned is to trust in my voice and to use it with confidence. Of all the lessons, and there have been many, right? Yeah. I would say that one um, in broad strokes would be it. I, you know, I grew up, as we were saying, in this really strict Rastafari household. Um, and for the women of Rastafari, a lot of times being inside that culture manifested itself in ways where what was asked of you was your silence. You know, women, when I was growing up, I was kind of told, you know, I shouldn't have opinions. Um, my highest virtue was my obedience, my pliance, and my silence. And so pretty early on, I began, I rejected that. I was never a silent um, person. Um, I always questioned, I was always skeptical, always curious. Once I began writing poetry, which was something my mother gifted to me, because she had her own love of poems growing up. And once I started writing poetry, I began to really see what my voice could do on the page. I began to nurture that secret self there on the page in the poems. And finally, through my writing and through my poems, I, I got that confidence to speak. And, and, and I believed finally that what I had to say had importance. And I was never going to shut up after that. <laughs> <laughs> and you've also spoken about, it's, you started writing the memoir in 2013. Yes. And 
I start to think, yeah, start oh, thinking, to thinking about, about it. Okay. And, you know, and I had written like a short uh, lyrical essay that parts of the, the beginning, the opening of, of the prologue in the memoir came from. Yeah. Okay. And then you've also spoken about it. You wanted to write it in when it was a safe place. Yes. Why was that important to you? And how did you find that place of safety? It was important to me because I didn't want to harm myself or my family in the writing of it. And for I think for that, writers need to have a place of safety. I had a professor when I was getting my master's in 2013. He was also a poet who had written a memoir. And he said, you know, I think all writers who are writing memoirs like this need to be, come from a place of safety. And he said, that place of safety, I don't think you have it yet. Because I was at that time really tortured by what had happened to me. I was having nightmares. I was not in a place where I'd had enough distance that I had processed what happened to me, that I had even begun a journey of healing. And I didn't want to write this memoir out of that hurt that I was feeling, that raw wound um, of where I was in my life at that time. I think it would have been a much different book if I'd written it then. Um, and I just emotionally was not prepared or equipped to write it. So I put it away and waited until I, I felt like I could write it from a place of safety. So would you say that the writing has helped you process? Because some people say that, they, for example, people that journal, yes. they say they write to process their emotions, they write to process an experience. But you sort of waited to process, then wrote? Mm. How would you say that relationship between processing your emotions and writing yes. where did you kind of find a way to marry the two yeah I mean I was still writing poems so I put this away but I wrote a whole other book <laughs> a collection yeah. of poems yeah. you know so I was processing my experiences in a different way okay. you know through poetry which because it was always my natural mode of processing and alchemizing my emotions it was easier for me to think through the things that had happened to me through poetry than it was for prose. Like prose was a whole different beast. You know, there were so many things that I can do on the page in poetry um, that I often describe as like a window through which I can climb and <laughs> escape, you know, the thing. But, you know, in prose, particularly in the memoir, having to write things like scenes of dialogue directly pulled from my memory, there was not really any escape I had to stay there in the memory and shape it and reshape it and think about, you know, there was no window to escape. Um, and there were some moments in writing, in writing the book where I would make some of those poetic maneuvers on the page where I, I let the imagery speak for me. I think meaning can be processed through imagery. This is what I do in my poetry, right? And a lot of the time, my editors would be like, well, can you say a little bit more <laughs> I'm like I thought it was very clearly said in this yeah. image right here she was like well no. most prose readers aren't coming to the book like that and you should not leave your memoir up for interpretation like that. you know you should be very precise about what you're saying <laughs> you know what the truth is what the facts are and how those are you know tied to memory so I did need time to process a lot of the experiences in order to really write it, then revise it, then edit it, then copy edit it. I mean, you know, writing a book, you have, it's, it's a long process. Um, and, you know, I've had to read it so many times. I ended up even reading the audiobook. I could not have recorded the audiobook in 2013, girl, let me tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have gotten through it. So I needed that time so that I could write the book from a place of hope. I could write the book thinking about the future, that the book itself could, what kind of change could it make in my family, if any? I wanted to write the book from that space. Audre Lorde has this quote where she talks about poetry. She says, poetry is a bridge across our fears to possibilities we've never imagined before. And so I was thinking about writing the book 
in this way, that the writing of the book was its own act of change, that it could be this bridge of possibilities toward the future for, you know, the girls who are still to come in my family and the boys too, for everybody, every Sinclair that's that's yet to come. So when did you first feel like a writer? You know, I wrote my first poem when I was 10. And if you'd asked me then when I was 10, I would say, yeah, I'm a writer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so all that to say, pretty early on, I felt that poetry and writing was calling to me in a way that nothing else had and nothing else did since then. My mother, as I'd mentioned before, was the person who really gave me this love of poetry. Like she would have me and my siblings memorize and recite poems. She would have us write our own songs. It was part of her, um, her own curriculum that she'd built for us outside of school and on the weekends, like her own education methods. We had a book called Sound and Sense that she had when she was younger and she gave it to me. And this is about the foundations of poetry, you know? But when I was 10, that's when she handed me my first book of poems and she said, you know, I think I think you'll like this. I think she said poetry had always soothed the ills of the world for me. And I think it might do the same for you. And it did. You know, I read that poem. I read that first poem. It was like a poem by Blake called The Tiger. And I was struck by it. But I wanted to do what I wanted to do what that poem was doing. And so I wrote my first poem called The Butterfly. Uh-huh. <laughs> You know, 10 years old, like the butterfly. But I think the first time that I really felt like a writer, I don't know, there were so many moments too before I was even a published poet. Because after that, you know, in Jamaica, we have our speech competitions where you where it's actually like a national cultural event where students from high school go, they meet and it's a competition where you go up there and you recite poetry and you get rewarded. Um, and I went to the speech competition and I recited my own poem. Everybody else came up there. They were reciting other people's poems. And I recited my own poem Ooh. and I won gold for my poem. So th- there were moments where I was writing and I was feeling validated in my writing But when I was 16 is when I published my first poem. I'd given, you know, like three little poems that I'd handwritten to my mother to (laughs) mail in to the national newspaper, the Sunday Observer. They had a literary art supplement and mailed it in. And the editor called me and he was like, you you know, you have a great poetic talent. I want to publish your poems. You know, we should work together. And yeah, that was 16. My first poem was published. After that, even in my passport, it said writer. Ooh. I was 16. You couldn't tell me a thing. <laughs> I was like, I'm in the paper. My words are, yeah, I'm in print. Yeah. From that point on, writer was my identity. I claimed it. Even, you know, like I went and took my passport picture and it said occupation. I wrote writer. you know so that was the first time I really I claimed it claimed it you know 16 and growing up in the environment you grew up in in the Rastafari environment yeah how was writing like your saving grace or safe place because you had so many rules and regulations you had to follow so you had things you had to wear Mm. the way you wore your hair and even you've mentioned that even in Jamaica you felt isolated even within your own country so where did writing play that part for you Writing played such a crucial role for me, as well as uh, reading too. You know, just a love of literature as a whole made my world feel much more expansive when one would, might have imagined it, it would have felt narrower, you know? Having all these rules, you know, placed on my body, on my mind. Uh, my siblings and I were not allowed to leave the house or like leave the yard, go beyond the gate. My sisters and I were not allowed to have friends. And so this did several things. It it made me and my siblings much closer. We kind of built our own little community of the four of us. And we all kind of went into the world of books as a space where, I mean, the universe was endless. 
you know, you could, we could go into a book and the possibilities were wide, boundless. And so literature always represented that for me and for my siblings. And then after my mother introduced me to poetry and it really took root in me in a way that it hadn't with my other siblings, for some reason, I had that thing. And I think all poets just have that thing. It's like, you know, whatever fertile soil is needed for the seed of poetry to grow. I had it a lot. Yeah. You know, and um, when I began writing my poems, even when, when it was 10-year-old nature poems, you know, about how much I love the hills and I love <laughs> the garden. It still nurtured me in a way that was very crucial to my upbringing and my own development as the young girl I was becoming. Uh, even though I didn't have a voice in my household, or I wasn't really encouraged to speak on the page and through my poems. I could really cultivate that voice and cultivate that self. I owe a lot of um, my confidence and a lot of the ways that my life changed to literature and to poetry. And how has Jamaica or being Jamaican influenced your writing? Because you mentioned that the memoir is like a love letter to Jamaica. How does that play its part? I mean, it plays... <laughs> an immense role. I mean, the book does not exist without Jamaica. The writing does not exist. The first word does not exist um, without Jamaica. And so, you know, as I was saying before, that even the way I am constructing my sentences is deeply rooted in Jamaican landscape, Jamaican culture. I wanted to make sure that you know, in writing the book in the way that we speak. So the, the languages I'm using in the book, you know, I wanted it to be authentic. I wanted the reader, when they open the book, to feel that they had stepped into this, to my island, this place I love so much. You could feel the humid mist on your face. You could feel my mother's warmth, that you could hear the lapping of the sea just from the, even the first line, the first word, right? It means everything to me. You know, I wanted to expand on a lot of people's ideas about Jamaican culture, about Rastafari history, and how the two are, are intertwined. Because I think a lot of people have an idea of what they think it is. It holds this really big space in, in the global imagination of, of Rastafari and what people think of when they think Jamaica. I really wanted to pay tribute to Jamaica and give a view of Jamaica that was beyond this postcard idea of paradise, that you could really see and feel the real people of Jamaica. What is it like for a young Rasta girl growing up in Jamaica? You know, a lot of people, when they think about Rastafari, right, they think about the men. They think about That's the so brethren. True. The Rasta women are, are virtually invisible. I don't think anyone has a vision in their minds of what a Rasta woman's life is like, what a young Rasta girl's life is like, what are her dreams like, her fears like. What is it like for her to grow up inside of Rastafari? And I wanted to, to also write about that. What would you say it is like? <laughs> it was a hard place to grow up simply because there were all these restrictions placed on Rasta women and young Rasta girls that weren't placed on the boys and on the brethren. Um, there's like three main sects of Rastafari, but all of them kind of have these rules about how women should be, how we should dress, you know, this idea that we should cover our bodies some Rasta women cover their hair. This thought that women are the vessel for children for the, and, and the man's seed to bear children. This idea that, again, women should be silent. Um, some Rasta brethren believe that women are unclean um, or impure because they menstruate. 
you know, this idea of, of being unclean and this obsession with my purity was something that shaped my childhood and adolescence for a very, very long time. And I really feared coming into puberty because I wanted to be pure. I wanted to be clean. And then I started to question, what's wrong with me? You know, why am I unworthy or why am I impure simply because I'm a girl? I began to see that the rules diverged between me and my brother, right? We were always very close. We would like run and play and ramp and climb trees. And when I was around nine, my father called me to him and he said, how tall are you now? And I said, oh my gosh. And he measured me and I was above his shoulders. And he looked at me as if in growing tall, I had done something wrong. And he said, you're not climbing trees no more. That's over. And he said to my mother, throw out every shorts, every trousers in the house. No girl child of mine ever gonna wear trousers again. I don't want my daughters dressing like no Jezebel. And that, that was nine, right? And that's when I really began to question everything. Growing up, feeling like I was diminished because of something outside of my control, because of my gender, it was difficult. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. And have you ever felt like giving up in terms of your career, your writing, based on your own upbringing? How did you keep going? Never felt like giving up, never. You know, I talk a lot about poetry and writing for me as an act of survival. And I remember when I got to the U.S. and I was studying in my master's program, studying poetry, a lot of my peers were very befuddled. They were confused or skeptical about you, about how I spoke about poetry. When I said poetry for me has always been an act of survival, they were like, wow, is it really that deep? deep. Is it really that intense? Well, <laughs> okay. actually, yeah, it, it actually is <laughs> that deep. Yeah. It actually is like I would not be sitting here today if it weren't for poetry. In my darkest moments, in my moments of doubt and uncertainty, my moments when I wondered what was my life's meaning, if there was any value to my life, it was poetry that spoke back to me from the void and said, yes, there is meaning to your life. And so when I say poetry for me is an act of survival, I mean that. Absolutely. Which is why I, I keep talking about what my mother gifted me. Because when she gave me that first collection of poems, I don't think even she knew what wondrous future she was weaving ahead of me. But I owe it all to her that day when she gave that book to me and she gave me my love of poetry. She made all of this possible. And in terms of your relationship with your mother now, yes, what have you told her <laughs> since your book's come out? What have I told her? She knows it all. <laughs> Not in terms of the context, but like, have you had like a moment where you've really like let her realize how much her giving you poetry when you're much younger has essentially saved your life or transformed your life? Yes. I mean, I've told her all the time and she knows it because she comes to my readings and events and stuff. And I, I always talk about her. I have so many poems that are about her. I have a poem that's about her hands um, and what her hands have made in the world. And every time she's there in the readings, I look down and she's like mouthing the words to the poems. Aww. I say, Mom, what are you doing? <laughs> the first time, th there was one time where um, 
I had read a poem for the first time. I'd just written it. And I looked down and she's mouthing the words. <laughs> I said, how do you even know the words? She's like, I just knew the words before you said them. Wow. She's a magic woman. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, you know, I, I tell her in every way I can. In, in everything I write is a tribute to her. And I just love now that she can be with me and see everything that's happening. She was with me a couple weeks ago um, when my book launched in the U.S. And it was so amazing to see, like, as many people who wanted to meet me and talk to me about the book, she had her own receiving line of Aww. people who wanted to meet her and talk to her. <laughs> I can see why, though. And she just keeps saying, oh, my glad bag boss, my glad bag boss. What does that mean? Like, I'm so happy. Aww. I'm so happy. I'm overjoyed. Um, she said, my head is so heavy with this crown. My head is so heavy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, um, she knows. I've, I've expressed my gratitude to her in so many ways from for so long um, and will continue to. In your story, when would you say was your biggest moment of defiance? I feel like there's so many moments of defiance in the book. Yeah, but I think so one of many. Your, exactly. <laughs> a lot of them were quite quiet, I'll say, or shared between your mum and yourselves or between you and your siblings. Yeah. But I think the loudest one was like a physical yes. declaration, essentially, Yeah. of your defiance was when you cut your hair. Yes. Cut your dreadlocks. Yes. Why did you decide to do that? What was going through your mind? And why did you want to make that open declaration of, you know? I was having all these quiet rebellions, you know, on the page, through my poetry. I, at, at a certain point, you know, got my mother to get my father to agree that I could wear trousers again. So I was like taking everything I could take inch yeah. by inch. <laughs> um, but the dreadlocks was the one thing that I knew and that we all knew, me and my sisters, that that was one step too far. If we did that, our father would disavow us forever. Um, because I think a lot of people think of dreadlocks as like, it's a fashion choice or yeah. it's a, you know, it's it's like a an assertion of your blackness, but there's not much rooted in it beyond that, right? But for the Rastafari, wearing of the dreadlocks is a sacred marker of being Rastafari, right? It is an expression of your reverence, your your reverence for Jah, your purity, and showing that you are holy. And it was also the thing that kept me tethered to my father. It was the thing that to him represented his control, right? And represented to his Rasta brethren that his house was still under control. Okay. That was the biggest step I could take. And I did not know how he would react. But it was also the thing that I had worn like a burden for so long. It was not a choice that I made. It, it, you know, it got for so long I was treated badly by students at school, by my teachers, by people in the street who were calling out after us, taunting us because we were the only Rasta children in school and we were the only Rasta children who are on the streets or on the, you know, at the beach. And so for so long, the dreadlocks were, were this thing that I really wore like a, like a heavy, heavy burden. And it never felt like it was me, that it was part of me. And it was a choice I made for myself. And so, yes, I decided eventually <laughs> that was it. I had enough and I wanted to find out for myself who I was beyond my father and beyond what he wanted for me, you know? And I asked my mother, I'd asked her so many times before, and she was like, no, I think you know the answer to that one. It's a no. I think everything I'd f I had been feeling manifested in this illness, like physical illness, right? And I saw this vision of what my future self was going to be. Right, this kind of like ghostly woman, silent, pliant, obedient, bent under her wordlessness, just a humble Rastaman's wife. 
right with no dreams, no desires, no future. And I said, I must cut her out of me. And if I don't, I don't want to be here anymore. And I said that to my mother, and she said, no, 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 no. Anywhere you're going, I'm going. So let's do it. I said, are you sure? Um, you know, what's daddy going to say? She said, doesn't matter what he's going to say. I don't need his permission because you're my daughter. And, you know, it, it was almost like a ritual where she she had, she called a friend in and it was like these two women who, you know, they poured hot water over my hair and then they began to cut the dreadlocks. And suddenly, this thing I had thought about for so long, that had weighed on me for so long, it was gone. Um, and now I was free to choose what happened next. Wow. And even looking at your relationship with your dad now, I really like the scene where you're reading a poem that's indirectly towards him and he's in the audience. Yeah. And you embrace and it's just tears. Like even now I've got like shivers. It was something like, I see you, isn't it? He, he said, said I'm, I'm listening and I hear you. Yes. And you couldn't even respond because you're so what was that moment like uh, you know it was it was a beautiful moment a transcendent moment but when he said it I felt like so much had just been released from me right everything that had all the hurt all the pain all the you know the decades of of silence and of wounds I felt released from it, suddenly. And I knew then I had a place of safety, right? That place of safety we were talking about earlier, it was that moment. It took so long to get it that. It took long, right? Mm -hmm. um, if that hadn't happened, I probably would never have written a book. But I, I felt like just a gasp of, of a breath releasing of, of all that had come before that, all that we had behind us. I felt release from me. And I said, okay, I'm ready to write it. It felt like it was the first time he actually looked me eye to eye. You know, like I was a full-blooded person, my own person that he could look at with respect as somebody beyond him, outside of him, who had made her own decisions, authored her own life, built her own future outside of what he <laughs> had wanted for me. And that he was okay with that. I can't say proud because Rasta don't feel proud, but that he felt iry. What does that mean? Means he felt good. He felt overjoyed. If he could ex express pride, which Rasta don't believe in, it would be something like that. I didn't even know how it was going to go, and I'd like practice all day what I was going to say because I didn't just read the poem. I also like, I said something to him, hey. you know, and I was like, talking about how I had a complicated relationship with my father and how many people in the Caribbean have complicated relationships with their fathers. But I did say, Father, I just want you to hear me. And then I read the poem. And then he said, I hear you. I'm listening. And so, yeah, I think that's the moment, not only that I felt I, I had permission from my younger self to write the book, but that I felt that the book itself could be that bridge of possibilities, right, toward healing. Did the researching on the book also help with that? Because you obviously had to have hard conversations with your mom, your dad, your siblings. And I think what's interesting about a memoir is that you have to characterise real people and you wanted to make sure that you give them grace, which I think you gave every character in the book grace because they're real people. Yeah. Regardless of what Even they've done. Even some who didn't... Deserve it. Deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> but, but I feel like doing it in that, or writing it in that way, yes. it allows the reader to, one, make their own decisions and also just see that everyone is... Like every human has their own journey that they need to, to go on and you just let those people breathe. How did you go about researching and speaking to your parents about those intricate details. Yeah, and you know, for the chapters where my 
my parents, it's about my parents, like, as adolescents and how they met each other and how they came to Rastafari. You know, I just called them and recorded our conversations. I asked them a lot of questions about that time in their life, how they were feeling, um, because I really wanted to imbue the the scenes and, and, and the chapter with a lot of details. I wanted the reader to be able to walk inside of my parents' head to feel all the nuances of their interior landscapes, you know, the emotional velocity of what they were going through. And so, yeah, I, I had many conversations with them. A lot of it happened during the pandemic. And so it was also a nice way that to keep connected with them. We were so far away, but I was still having these long phone conversations. You know, my mother was used to it because I'm always asking her about yeah. her life and stuff. And she is always telling me about my life over and over, you know, with her stories. But I think my father was surprised that I called him, that I wanted to know anything at all about Rastafari. Because I think in his mind, I had disavowed it so completely that I would never want to know a single thing about it. That itself made me think about how I wanted to, how I would represent him in the book and on the page. Just hearing him talk about his introduction to Rastafari at 16, 17, talking about how his Christian family, his mother kicked him out of the house because he was Rastafari at 16. Um, it really changed a lot of the ways that I thought about him. It definitely warmed me to him in a way that I hadn't before because he'd never told me these stories. And it was important to hear them, but I was also surprised to see how he reacted as he was telling them to me because he became very emotional when he was describing to me the scene in the book where his mother turns him away as a teenager. And he started crying as he was saying it to me. And I was shocked because I never heard him cry before. And it moved me, but it also surprised me because I realized how heavily he was still being wounded by what had happened to him, that he was still under the weight of his own traumas, unprocessed. Yeah, and so I began to see him in a more compassionate light than I had ever seen before or that he'd ever made himself available to me <laughs> to yeah. be seen, you know? Yeah, if only Rasta believed in therapy. <laughs> That's <another> conversation. <laughs> that we might, I, you know, the last time I saw him, I, I begged him. I said, please, I'm asking you to consider it. There is so much here that you need to really talk through with somebody. So the next section is called Writing Rituals. Okay. So it's basically where we're going to talk about your writing practices and how you actually wrote the book, mm -hmm. even just how you approach writing in itself. So the first question I'm going to ask you is, what is your poetry practice? Oh, okay. My poetry practice is to just let the poem come to me when it comes. I believe that my poems kind of need to be wild and unjungled. And I think when the muse knock on my door, I open it and listen to the song she is singing. And there the poems come. I'll say more specifically, I, I usually, I'll have like an image that's circling my head or I'll have a line, a first line. Sometimes I'll even have a title, but a lot of the time I have a first line and I have an image. I don't write it down for a very long time. I keep the line in my head. I walk around with it. I shift it. I change it sometimes. If it stays with me for days and days, then I write it down. And then usually the entire poem pours from there. In just one feverish sitting, the poem comes. And then after that, I'll spend a few days or a few weeks or sometimes a few months revising. But that first initial moment, that's kind of my process. I kind of wait for the fever of the poem to take me. I wait for the poem to take root in my mind. 
and then I write it down. So because you're so used to writing poems, how did you approach writing a memoir? How different is it? Very different. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, as different as night and day. I mean, I, um, but also particularly because I wanted to write the memoir in a specific way. I wanted to be very intentional and rigorous about the way I was writing it. Because of that, it was different. So, you know, I've just described my my poetic practice, yeah. right, of, of a lot of it is um, making order out of chaos. A lot of it is going towards uncertainty. I never know where the poem is really going to take me. When I begin writing a poem, I don't know how it's going to end or what the poem even is going to be about. So that's completely different than writing prose. Like you can't write a 350-page yeah. book of prose that way. I discovered very quickly. <laughs> you tried. No, I didn't even try. I said there's just no way. And that's I didn't want to write something that had no no vision, right? It was too important the things that I had to write about. So I wanted to be very careful about how I was going to write it and how I was going to tell the story. So I outlined the book. I outlined each chapter and tried to figure out what points in my life I was going to keep and highlight and how might those moments in my life link into each other by taking my entire life and distilling it down to this one narrative arc. How would I do that, right? And so those are the things I was thinking about. Um, And the outline really helped I thought a lot about how I was going to present time in the book. Um, You know, following seemingly a kind of chronological order, but still beginning, the prologue begins at a a point where we're like two-thirds through the book. I thought a lot about dialogue, about the language, and how I wanted the dialogue to be read. I thought a lot about scenes, and building scenes to move the chapters along. I had to think about historical research and not wanting that to just seem like I dumped facts on the page. I still wanted the historical parts of the book to read beautifully. It took so much more um, careful attention and attending to it each day, each day, each day, Whereas I just let the poem drag me through the jungle and tell me what's going on, (laughs) right? (laughs) Could not do it with this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You were also quite particular about having patois. Why did you think that was important? And how did you infiltrate that into the prose? I mean, it was important because that's just how we talk. For me, there was no other, there was never any other option. There was no other thought for an alternative. It was like, this is how we speak. And I wanted to make sure I captured that as closely as possible on the page. I thought about the patois that we speak in my family and all of us speak in Jamaica. I also thought about the Rasta vernacular that, you know, the Rastafari use, which I've been calling Rasta poetics, right? Which is this particular way. It's its own separate vernacular from patois, um, which is born out of anti-colonial linguistic rebellion. Um, They deliberately want to uproot everything to do with the English language, with imperialism, and turn it on its head. And they don't want to use any negative words, right? So to them, it's all about being positive. So, you know, like those moments where, you know, my father doesn't say understand. He says overstand. He doesn't say appreciate. He says appreciate love. He doesn't say continually. He says itinually. And then Rastafari don't speak in the singular. They don't say me. They say I and I or the I or I man. Because the idea is that Ja is always with the Rasta man. And they speak from a collective spirit rather than an individual one. You're also a lecturer in creative writing. Yes. So I actually wanted to ask you, when you look at your students' work, what five things do you look for in good creative writing? It doesn't even need to be five. Um, I'm looking for a poem that has a specific point of view. 
So I want, when I read the poem, to feel like this poem could only have been written by that particular poet. And so I'm always telling my students that they need, the poem needs to be, in its own way, their fingerprint, right? The poem needs to represent, to me, the reader, how they see the world, right? Anybody can say, I went for a walk to the park, but I want to know, how did you walk? What did you notice on your walk? Because what you might have noticed on your walk is what is different than what I might have noticed on my walk. What memories did it call up for you, right? How, what kind of associative image would you make if you saw, you know, a tree with yellow blooms? How would you describe that? I want to know your way of seeing the world. And so if a poem gives me that poet's particular interior landscape and their vision of the world, then it has been successful. That's it. And make it sing. Yeah, I know your words do sing. <laughs> I'm like, please, I beg you, make it sing, no? I'm always telling my students to, when they write their poems or when they compose their poems, to read it out loud, right? So I also believe a successful poem doesn't just exist on the page, that it exists also orally, that it's supposed to move through us like an incantation, right? Lorca calls it duende, right? This idea that the poem moves through you from the root of your foot to the top of your head, like an electric current. That's not going to happen if you don't also read your poem out loud when you're composing it so you can feel the spaces where the lines are collecting energy or there are parts where you're running out of breath so maybe you need to change that line or there's a word that falls flat. So the poem also needs to work out loud. So read it out loud when you're composing it so it will sing. And how can, or how have you used writing as a weapon? I don't know if it needs to be a weapon, you know? I think when I was younger, I thought of things in that way, in this, that power only comes through using words like weapon and, you know, wielding. And I grew up in such, in a household with such strict binaries, right? To my father, you were either a lion heart or you were a weak heart. And I grew up for so long having this kind of skewed idea of what strength looked like, what power looked like. So maybe then I thought my poems could be a weapon. Like I wrote, one of the first poems I wrote was a persona poem called Daddy. And I remember when it had been published in the paper, my father thought it was about him, but it was not about him. It was a poem about a young girl I'd heard about on the radio whose father was a pastor who had molested her and she killed herself. And I wrote this poem from her persona, right? Thinking about assault, thinking about victims, thinking about this thing that happens to young Jamaican girls. It had nothing to do with me. But the poem was published in the paper called Daddy. And when my father opened the paper, I saw him feel wounded for the first time. That poem was a weapon. And over the years, I thought about that for a long time, that my 16-year-old self had been so shaped by her environment that she only knew how to manifest strength that way, right? Uh, but in writing the book, I began to see my mother's own way of strength, right? A gentler, a nurturing way, um, a calming tide. And I think a lot about the sea and Rather than thinking about a poem as a weapon, I think about a poem as a world, a poem as an ocean. And that's what I like my poems to do. I like that. And lastly, what is your favorite thing about being a black writer? I feel blessed by all those who came before me. I feel blessed to be even just a little leaf <laughs> on the tree of, of, you know, our great, great tradition that, that we have coming before us. And, you know, not just writers like Lucille Clifton and Toni Morrison and Audre Lorde and, you know, Miss Lu Louise Bennett and <laughs> Erna Broadburn, Sylvia Winter, but also the unseen and unsung women who gave us their stories, who handed 
their songs down to us, um, who pushed their hands into the dirt and made sure that we survived. I am also grateful for them because without them, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have my words. I wouldn't have my writing. And the last section is called Advice You Give. Okay. Which is basically where, yeah, if you could just share advice to other black writers who maybe poets may write in prose or want to have books being published, what advice would you give them based on what you've learned? I always tell my students, be patient. I think a lot of the time it feels like there's a rush to write, 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 publish, 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 and put it out, put out everything. Yeah. I'm very much a proponent. We were just talking 10 years thinking about the book, five years composing it, um, taking your time, you know, because I, I think quality over quantity. And so I think patience is good. I think read everything. Before I even write one word, I read so much. Um, and not just poetry and fiction, but I'm, you know, I'm reading philosophy, I'm reading science, uh, you know, I'm reading about astrology, I'm reading all of, all of this is the stuff that poems distill all the stuff of life into that singular point of view. One golden hair we hold up to the light, but our golden hair holes in its atoms every single thing that ever existed in the universe. That's what poetry does, right? And so that's not something to be careless with. And so I think read everything. And when I say that, I mean, read also the writers who came before you, came before me in our tradition, right? Read all the black writers, but also read the old dead white ones too. <laughs> because, no, because... You need to know the foundations of the house before you burn it down. That was such a beautiful conversation with Safiya. And I think what I really loved about it was how much grace she has given her dad. And the moment when she saw her dad cry, I feel like that was such a pivotal moment in her journey just her journey of overcoming, her journey of forgiveness and just allowing herself to, yeah, let go of that pain and that hurt and that trauma. And I also really loved what she said about her poetry. Guys, even the way she speaks is poetic. <laughs> it's like, so I'm not surprised that her poems just come to her because the way she speaks when she's just having a conversation is poetry in itself. If you enjoy this episode or have any thoughts to share, feel free to use our hashtag Black Prose Podcast or follow us across all socials at Black Prose Pod. And I'll be looking forward to catching up with you guys next time.